62 years ago, an intrepid group of young men and women were determined to hike and ski through a mountain range in Russia. After they failed to return home, rescuers were sent to find them. But what they found stumped everyone. They had all died, some from hypothermia, but some were severely injured. But even stranger, they wore no shoes and were nearly a mile from their tent. What happened to these young, healthy, experienced people? This is one of Russia's greatest mysteries. This is the story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today's case was recommended by Chad V. and was a great recommendation. I'd heard the story before, but it was really fun to take a deep dive into the research. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed researching it. Today's case takes us back in time to 1959 in Russia. First, let me tell you a little bit about my research on Russia. Did you know that one of the largest museums on earth is in Russia? It's called the Hermitage, and if you were to admire each piece in the museum for two minutes, it would take you two years to see everything. Russia hosts the longest single railway in the world, the Trans-Siberian, which crosses eight time zones. 87 cities, and 16 rivers. The country also has more billionaires per capita than anywhere else in the world. Our case, however, takes us far away from the cities and billionaires to the Ural Mountain chain. The original people inhabiting the area were a tribe called the Mansi. They named one of the mountains out there something that I can't pronounce. I tried to, and I'm sure I was wrong, so I'm going to spare you the slaughtering of the name but in the Mansi language, it means the mountain of the dead. They named it that way because nine hunters once stayed there overnight and were all found dead later. The Mansi people believe the mountain is haunted. On the eastern shoulder of the mountain, there is an area now called Dyatlov Pass. It was named after the group of nine students and researchers who met tragedy and untimely deaths there. The leader of the group was named Igor Dyatlov. He and the group set out on January 23, 1959. He led the group of 10 people who are all experienced in long skiing treks and hiking expeditions. Their mission was to climb to the peak of Mount Horton, which supposedly in the Mansi language means don't go there. One of the 10 in the group was named Yuri Yudin. He had to turn around and return home because he was having too much trouble. In some reports it read that he was sick, and in other reports it said that he had sciatic pain in his back and legs and had to turn around. Lucky for him, this decision saved his life. It ended up that their group of nine went into the mountains and eventually failed to make radio contact on an agreed-upon date. In February, a search party found their bodies in the mountain with very strange injuries and unexplainable circumstances. To this day, no one really knows what happened on that mountain. Several photos were taken before the incident by members of the expedition. All the members of the expedition also kept a journal, and in the photos we can see what happened at the beginning of their trek. Also, some of them kept private journals, and we can tell a little bit about what they did by reading those journals as well. This is what we know happened. On January 28th, there were still 10 in the group, and Yuri Yudin, who was a geologist, took the group to look for some local minerals. 
Nothing of any consequence was found, and after this day, Yuri decided to go back because he wasn't feeling well. Yuri claims to have overheard a conversation between Dyatlov, the leader of the group, and a local. He didn't hear the whole conversation, but it seemed to him that the local was trying to warn Dyatlov about something. According to Yuri, Dyatlov brushed it off and ignored the warning. He stated that they would decide which path they would take once they got to the river. He told Yuri that their planned route would probably take them a day or two longer than expected, but they planned to be back on February 14th, Valentine's Day. The group headed towards a river called the Lawsby. The journal stated the snow wasn't as deep as the previous year, and the group seemed to have trouble with melting snow getting stuck under their skis. At 5.30 p.m., they stopped to make camp. One of the girls' journals said they were sitting around a campfire, singing songs and talking about love, and specifically kissing. They had brought a stove with them for heating and melting water. It seemed to be a source of arguments because no one wanted to sleep next to it. The following day, they continued toward another river. It was noted here that they followed an old Mansi trail and that the temperature was negative 13 degrees Celsius, or about 9 degrees Fahrenheit, with very little wind. This trip already sounds terrible to me. The following day, they continue along the banks of the river. They said they had seen markings left on trees by local Mansi tribe, which the skiers discussed. The Mansi have a written language and leave characteristic signs on the forest trees. On January 30th, the weather got worse. The morning temperature was between negative 13 and negative 17 degrees Celsius, which would drop to negative 26 degrees Celsius. This is negative 15 in Fahrenheit. They said significant wind picked up and snow had begun to fall from a thick cloud cover. As they climbed, the forest began to thin with the altitude, which was normal in the mountainous range. On the 31st, the wind was blowing very hard, hard enough to blow snow off the trees and blow snow across the ground. The group said that they took turns leading for 10 or 15 minutes. The first person had to push the snow down with their skis, then they would go to the back of the group and the next person would push the snow down to help clear the path for them. The pace averaged about one mile an hour. Eventually, they left the valley and continued upwards. The snow cover was reported to only be about 1.2 meters, or just over 3 feet thick. By evening, they wrote that they were too exhausted to dig a hole for the fire. This was the last day that they wrote in the journal. The very last photo shows them digging the hole for the tent. The routine was to dig a hole, place their skis on the snow floor, then they would put the tent up using the skis as tent poles. They would then put their packs inside, which they would lay on the ground as further insulation. The tent was very heavy, not the thin material that many of us are familiar with. This was more like a very heavy canvas. They would normally have a fire pit outside, but there was a portable stove that they would have used to heat water for inside the tent. The rest of the trip was all supposition, based on reported evidence in the tent in the surrounding area, and in the state of the bodies when they were found nearly a month later. As I stated earlier, the group failed to make radio contact with a base camp. A search and rescue team was eventually sent out, and an empty tent was discovered on February 26th. 
The tent was partially standing, with a little bit of snow on top of it in some places. It appeared the tent had been cut open near the top, and had long slashes made down one of the sides. One of the search and rescue team cut into the tent to look for the bodies, but there were none in there. The strange thing was that there was a ski that held up each end of the tent. Both were still standing, and a ski pole was standing upright near the tent as well. One of the photos taken while the hole for the tent was being dug shows the pole upright and in the same spot it was found in when the rescuers arrived at the scene. Warm clothes, shoes, knives, flashlights, and many other useful items that they would need to survive in the wilderness were all still inside the tent. These items, plus train tickets found inside the tent, and money, kind of ruled out robbery or foul play. At this time, no one expected to find the expedition members dead because it was really only two weeks after they were scheduled to be back. They were very experienced and had supplies to be able to survive. This being the case, no one took care to preserve the tent or anything inside it. The people who were involved in the first search and rescue said they saw eight or nine tracks of people with almost no footwear walking away from the tent. In other words, they were barefoot or sock prints leaving the tent. Later on, other footprints were discovered and they were photographed, but it's hard to say if they were left by someone else or by the survivors. No bodies were found on the 26th. On the 27th, however, two of the rescue team came across a large cedar tree. It was about 1,500 meters from the tent, or nearly a mile. The tree looked like it would be a good place to set up a camp. Under the cedar, they saw the remains of a medium-sized fire and found two bodies frozen in the snow. Two men were laid side by side. They were not dressed well and had no shoes on. Now, when someone gets really cold, to the point they are freezing to death, there is often a phenomenon called paradoxical undressing. The last feeling a person feels when they are freezing to death is an overwhelming sense of heat. Sometimes they'll shed their clothing before they die. Rescuers thought perhaps that's what happened to these men, as they were not properly dressed at all. The bodies under the tree were later identified as Yuri Duroshenko, who was 21, and Yuri Krivenshenko, who was 24. Again, I apologize if the names are wrong. I don't speak Russian. A little further away from the tree, and a little closer to the tent, another body was found. It was the body of Igor Dyatlov, who was 22. About 500 meters closer to the tent, they found the body of Zina Kolmogrova. She was found by Mansi hunters with their dogs. She was also pointed in a direction like she was moving toward the tent. It seemed like both of them were trying to get to the tent from the cedar tree, but failed in doing so. On March 5th, the body of Rustam Slobodan was discovered, essentially in the same line of sight between the cedar tree and the tent. He was found in between the bodies of Igor and Zina. It seems that his body had fallen while he was still fairly warm, because the snow under him had melted and later frozen to become sort of like an ice bed. When researchers took a harder look at the cedar tree, it was found to have lower branches broken, probably used as firewood. Human skin and blood was found lodged in the crevices of the tree, almost as if someone was trying to climb it. 
maybe to escape something or maybe to gain a line of sight. There was also wood in a pile that had not been burned. There were still four bodies missing, and those were not found until May, a full two months later. They had managed to dig a den in the snow where they had tried to keep themselves warm. They had brought branches into the den to act as flooring and insulation. They also found clothing from some of the bodies that they had found further up the mountain. The den was only about 75 meters from the cedar tree. It had more protection from the harsh winds. They had even built a fire in the den, but had not been able to keep it going. The people in the den were better dressed than the other five, and their deaths were not from hypothermia. They had broken ribs, cracked skulls, and more. Ludmilla Dubanina was missing her tongue and her eyes. This group had the most mysterious wounds, and they were pretty severe. No one can explain why they were bleeding internally. Scratches and burns were on parts of their bodies, and one of them wore clothing that had elevated radiation levels. A note about the radiation is that officials insisted that they test the bodies for radiation, which is weird. That's not something that you would normally check for on a person who's been found dead in the woods. So this made people feel very suspicious. Did the government know something that no one else was privy to? Another strange thing was that the bodies were not found in the den. Rather, they were found a few feet away in a lower part of the ravine. It was all very strange. One of the victims was found with a camera around his neck. Unfortunately, the cold weather and water destroyed the film in the camera. It did seem strange, however, that he would grab his camera and not more warm clothes or protective equipment. I'm going to tell you about the autopsy reports next because they're very strange. And they are pretty detailed, so... If you don't like hearing about wounds and blood and things like that, you may want to forward for about five minutes. The first person is Yuri. He was one of the two bodies that was found under the cedar tree. He was wearing a vest and a short sleeve shirt, knit pants and shorts over his pants. His pants were very badly ripped with a large hole about a foot long on one side and a smaller hole about six inches long on the other side. His pants had tears on the inside of the thighs. He had on a pair of wool socks that were burned. He had no shoes on. Some of his missing clothes were found with the group that made it into the den later. His hair was burned on the right side of his head. He had blood on his ears, nose, and lips, as well as abrasions to his shoulders and his forearm. The fingers on both his hands had torn skin. He also had bruised skin on the upper third of both his legs. He had frostbite on his face and ears, and on his right cheek there was a gray foamy discharge. Some people believe this meant that something was pressing on his chest cavity or expelled from him, for example, if he were to fall from the tree. But his cause of death was determined to be hypothermia. Yuri Kravchenko was laid down next to the other Yuri under the cedar tree. He also had a long sleeve shirt, two shirts, a pair of pants, and a torn sock on his left leg. He had no footwear. He had bruises on his forehead and around the left temporal bone. He had bleeding on his head in a couple areas. That's quite a bit of damage to the head. The tip of his nose was missing. He had frostbitten ears, bruises on the right side of his chest and hands. 
and he had part of his knuckle missing from his left hand, which was later found in his mouth. So this skin that he had bitten off his hand was found in his mouth. He had bruises on his thighs and a bruise on his left buttock, legs, and a burn to his left leg. Igor Dyatlov, who was found about 100 meters from Yuri, was probably the most experienced in the group. He wore a fur coat, which was unbuttoned at the top, a sweater, a long sleeve shirt, ski pants over another pair of pants, and only one pair of socks with no shoes. He had abrasions on his forehead, abrasions above his eyebrow, reddish-brown abrasions on both his cheeks, and dried blood on his lips. He had bruising on his right hand that's common with people who've gotten into a fight. He also had bruises on the other hand as well as his lower right leg and both his ankles had abrasions. He had no internal injuries and his cause of death was determined to be hypothermia. Zena was found wearing two hats, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, and another sweater with torn cuffs. It was hard to say whether she had cut them or they were torn by another person. She was also wearing pants and ski pants with three small holes in the bottom. She had on three pairs of socks, but no shoes. She had frostbite on her fingers and numerous bruises on her hands. She also had a long bruise that circled her torso that was about six centimeters wide. Her cause of death was hypothermia due to a violent accident. Rustam Slobodan is the musical skier. He had brought a mandolin and loved to entertain the others. He was wearing two shirts, a sweater, two pairs of pants, and four pairs of socks. He wore one boot. His injuries included bruising on his upper eyelid and traces of blood coming from his nose, swollen lips, swelling, and a lot of other small abrasions on both sides of his face. He had skin that was torn on his right forearm, which was similar to those found in hand-to-hand -hand combat. He had bruises on his left arm and palm, a bone bruise on one of his legs, and a fracture of the frontal lobe of his skull. This could have happened from a blunt object. The examiner stated that he probably suffered loss of coordination right after the blow, and that may have sped up his death from hypothermia. It's unclear how he hurt his hands and legs. If you think that's bad, just wait until you hear about the injuries from the four who were in the den. Ludmilla Dubanina was 21 years old. She wore two shirts and two sweaters, underwear, long socks, and two pairs of pants. The external pair was badly damaged and ripped. She also wore a small hat, two pairs of warm socks, and a third sock was on one foot. In a last attempt to preserve her feet, it's believed that she took her sweater off and cut the sleeves into pieces to wrap around her left foot. As far as injuries go, it gets crazy. Her tongue was missing and both her eyes. Soft tissue was also missing around her eyes and the left side of her forehead and face. Several ribs were broken on her right side and left side. Essentially, she was crushed. Soft tissues of the upper lip were missing, and so her teeth and jaw were exposed. One thing of note was that she had undigested blood in her stomach, and that is what is used by some people to indicate that her heart was still beating when her tongue was removed. Ugh. Okay, moving forward. Simon Zolotarev was the oldest of the group. He was 38 years old. 
His body was found with two hats, a scarf, a long sleeve shirt, a black sweater, and a coat with two buttons at the top that were unbuttoned. Part of his body was protected by long underwear, two pairs of pants, and a pair of ski pants. He also had a pair of socks on and shoes. He was the only one with shoes. His eyes were also missing, as well as soft tissue around the left eyebrow. Five of his ribs were broken on the right side of his chest, and there was also an open wound to the right side of his skull with exposed bone. Alexander Kolotov was 25. He had no soft tissue around his eyes. His eyebrows were missing, and his skull bone was exposed. He also had a broken nose and a deformed neck. I assume that means his neck was broken. Nikolai Thibodeau was 25. He had multiple fractures to the temporal bone of the skull and bruises on his upper lip and left side and a hemorrhage on his lower forearm. The man who did the autopsy believed that the significant damage caused to the last four bodies was like being crushed with an immense force like being hit by a car. A couple more things you should know that are just odd and can't be explained are that after searching the tent and bodies, it was determined that one of the skier's diaries was missing, and at least one of the cameras from the group was missing. Not only that, but the tent had been cut open from the inside. Why would they do that? When the tent was found, one end was still upright and accessible. The other end had been knocked down, but the ski holding the tallest part of the tent was still standing it. It also had cut marks on it at the base. Also, on the morning of March 31st, which was well after the group's tent was found, search and rescue volunteers saw a strange, glowing, pulsating orb in the sky. They described it like this. It happened early in the morning while it was still dark. A soldier who stood guard saw a glowing sphere in the sky. He woke everyone up. They watched the orb or disk for about 20 minutes until it disappeared behind the mountain. It moved in a southeast direction from their tent, and then it began moving in a northern direction. It freaked everyone out. They felt certain that somehow this event was involved in the death of the Dyatlov group. Another strange thing was that the bodies seemed to be discolored, or at least some of them were. They were a reddish-brown color. So we have so many strange things with this story. Like, why would they walk away from the tent without shoes on? We have radiation on one person's clothing, and the government insisted on checking the bodies for radiation. The skiers had bleeding from the mouth, nose, and ears, and damage to their faces. There was discoloration of some of the victims' skin. There were bones that were completely crushed, and there were burns on some of the bodies. There were eyes and tongues missing. So what the hell happened to these victims? There are so many theories, at least 75, no joke. It's likely that we'll never know the answer, but I'm going to share with you just a few of these theories. Recently, just this February in fact, an article came out explaining even though they pitched their tent on a fairly flat area, a small slab avalanche may have caused damage to their tent and caused many of the injuries. It could be that when they cut into the snow to pitch their tent, as they were trying to protect themselves from the wind, they may have loosened a ledge of snow, and as the winds picked up throughout the evening, the snow may have broken loose, falling onto their 
tent in a very small and direct avalanche. This would explain why they had to cut their way out from inside the tent, and some of the crushing injuries. That volume of snow may have been enough to knock them down, injuring the people inside the tent. There was food open in the tent, so it could have been that they were just sitting down to eat. There were footprints found that headed down the hill, so that would also be explained if they were worrying about a second avalanche occurring. Things that speak against this theory is that there was relatively thin snow cover reported by the rescue group. Also, pictures of the tent show that the skis that held the ends of the tent up were still standing, and the ski pole that is seen in the picture was also still standing. People who support this idea believe that after four weeks, the snow that was pushed down the slope was simply blown off by the winds that were common in the area. This doesn't seem to hold water because there were footprints left and the ski pole still stood. It's also unlikely that people with broken ribs and bones would be able to be transported at all. Not only that, but this group was very experienced and they knew that freezing to death was far more likely than being killed by an avalanche. Another theory was that a Yeti, or the Soviet equivalent, attacked the group. This is a theory many people won't consider, but it's kind of backed up by a picture that several people claim could be a Yeti. The picture is blurry, but it shows someone peeking out from behind a tree, and the person seems pretty tall. You can see this picture online, as well as pictures of the group both alive and dead. I'll post some of them to Twisted Travel and True Crime's Instagram and Facebook pages. The Mansi people believe in an angry, violent animal known as the Menk that roams the Ural Mountains. Some of the Mansi who were part of the search party were shocked and believed the Menk to have killed the group because they believed several caribou to have been killed by Menk just a few days earlier. People who believe this theory believe the cuts in the tent were not made as a means of escape, but as a way to view the surroundings. They thought maybe the group felt threatened and wanted to look outside without opening the tent entrance and leaving themselves exposed. If they peeked out of the tent and saw a yeti, they may have panicked, ripping the tent down and running down the slope. That might explain why they left their warm clothes and necessities, and also why a camera was brought with them. Another possibility is that the group encountered a bear, which could have caused the bone injuries, but it's unlikely that the group would show so few flesh wounds or bite marks. Some people believe that the Soviet government was getting rid of witnesses. Perhaps the group saw something they weren't supposed to. Maybe they were forced out of camp by people with guns, forcing them to go without proper clothing, knowing they would die in the elements. Some froze on the walk away from the tent, but some lived being able to make the den. Later, soldiers were sent down to kill the last survivors. Two of the individuals seemed to show signs of fighting. Did they fight each other or an intruder? Were the soldiers so powerful that they could crush people's chests and so vile that they would remove tongues and eyes from the victims? There was no proof of this or really any indication that anyone else was there except one single sock which wasn't able to be identified as belonging to the group. But really... These are adults. Who's keeping track of their socks? Another theory was that criminals had escaped from a Siberian concentration camp. If they did, they'd have to live in the wilderness, possibly for years. 
but if that were the case, likely many of the victims' things would have been stolen. Yet another strange theory is UFOs. What about those orbs the rescue group saw? Well, they had been reported over time. It wasn't just that single day. And they weren't alone. Students, natives, and even local military had seen these. Most of the reports were stricken from records or were ignored. Maybe they were UFOs, or perhaps they were rockets being tested by the Soviets. Lev Ivanov was the man who was in charge of the investigation at Dyatlov Pass. Much later in his life, he gave an interview to a local journalist, where he said that during his investigation, some of the trees in the forest were burnt at the top. He claims that a member of the Soviet Congress forced him to take out all references to the unknown flying objects, or any other strange phenomenon, out of his reports. This also included pictures of flying spears drawn by the Mansi hunters and other testimonies of UFOs. The same member of the Soviet Congress who forced him to take the UFO information out of the investigation later became obsessed with UFOs himself. He had filed several requests to gain access to KGB archives relating to extraterrestrial life. Another theory was that either the wind or rockets made a sound that essentially drove the skiers out of the tents. This sound may have scared them or panicked them or driven them crazy, causing them to fight each other and to run. These sounds wouldn't explain the injuries, though. Many people think the most confusing part is what happened to the most severely injured individuals. They believe the ones in the den were the last to die, mostly because they took the clothes from their fallen comrades in order to help themselves survive. They believe they couldn't have been injured at the time if they'd already suffered those injuries. So whatever happened on the mountain happened over a period of time. It wasn't a single incident. How much time, though? In the below-zero weather, with high winds, it wouldn't have been that long. Could a military blast have occurred? If some were laying or sitting and some were standing in the tent, then some would have been injured more or less. This might have caused them all to become deaf or even blind. The blast could cause internal damage as well. They would run, then be essentially helpless and lost. Would a blast like that destroy the tent, or would it still stand? Where did the mysterious burns come from? The stove that was inside the tent was not assembled, and there weren't burns inside the tent. My personal theory, which is probably very wrong, is that a very isolated clump of snow or a mini avalanche crushed the end of the tent where the skiers stood and sat. Or maybe a bear fell on top of them. Either way, somehow, this knocked the group down on top of each other, and between the weight of the snow, or the bear, and the people, some were crushed. The whole group then moved quickly away from the tent, supporting the injured as best they could. They built a fire under the cedar tree and realized quickly this wasn't enough to save them. They climbed the tree for more wood for the fire. Some of them burned themselves as they were becoming frostbitten and couldn't feel their hands or feet anymore. They cut their hands on the wood in the tree, and perhaps the two of them who weren't wearing as much died first. The rest of them realized they had to be somewhere warmer, so they took the clothes from the dead onto the injured and dug the den, placing the injured there. Then some left to try to get to the tent for more supplies. 
The wind and the snow made the trip harder than they anticipated, and they died from the cold. The severely injured were the last alive, but were not able to tend the fire, and eventually died either from their wounds or from freezing to death. Perhaps as they died one by one, the last one living was able to push their bodies just outside the den, perhaps so that rescuers can find them more easily. The missing eyes and tongue may have been from decay, because the bodies were found in water. The problem with this is, why wouldn't the healthier ones take the warm clothes and shoes to get back to the tent? Perhaps they felt guilty as they received lesser wounds, and maybe they were the ones to take the group away from the shelter in the first place. Or perhaps they couldn't feel their extremities anymore and didn't realize how quickly hypothermia had set in. So what do you think? This is one seriously twisted travel story, and my brain is in knots over it. I'd love to hear your theories. You can reach me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com. I'd like to thank those of you who have donated to the show. You're amazing, and I feel so lucky to be able to entertain you. Thank you so much, Amy C., for becoming a supporter. Thank you to Christoph W., who posted that he loves the podcast. And thanks to all of you wonderful subscribers. If you enjoyed today's case, please share the podcast with a friend. And if you have a minute, give it a five-star rating and a review. If you don't think it should get five stars, that's okay too. I'd love some constructive feedback. As always, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas.